And uh, I invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 3. We're continuing our studies in Genesis. And last time we, we saw the how Adam fell and disobeyed the command of God. And uh, those fateful words at the end of verse 6. And he ate. Seems so simple, so small, uh, so insignificant in many ways. And yet it was a violation of the command of God. And uh, at that point, uh, mankind was plunged into... Uh, uh, sin and death but I want to uh, read on from there from verse 8 to to read of the the consequences uh, that follow and uh, so pick up verse 8 and read down to verse 21 I'll leave verses uh, 22 to the end to next week but verse 8 and they, that's Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden in the cool of the day And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. When I was a young lad, I was probably about 12, my brother was about 10, uh, we were told by my mother uh, never to have uh, 
uh, cushion fights in the living room. Do you know what cushion fights? You know, the, you know, brothers are like, don't have cushion fights in the living room. Why? Because things will get broken. And uh, well, we took the warning. And uh, but one day we, uh, my brother and I, we got home from school before my parents uh, got back from their work. And we were messing about in the living room, and as often happens with brothers, uh, it turned into a cushion fight. Um, and me being bigger, I was winning, of course. But the inevitable happened, and uh, one cushion hits a central light shade, so hanging in the center of the room, and uh, it, parts of it came down onto the ground. And of course, mum and dad weren't home at this point, so there was an eerie silence for a moment as everybody went, "What's happened?" <laughs> and uh, and then we thought, well, we can take the bits and we can put them back in the central light shade, and hopefully nobody will notice. <laughs> so we did that, and uh, it was a couple of days before my mother finally noticed that uh, there was something wrong with the central light shade. And we were up in our room, uh, messing about again upstairs, and those fateful words came up the stairs with the, that certain tone, Stephen, Michael, come down here. And uh, she discovered the broken uh, light shade. And of course what happened then was, as brothers do, we started blaming each other. It was his fault, he started it. And uh, no it wasn't, it was his fault, he, he swung the cushion. And uh, you get this argument going on, and uh, much to the exasperation of parents. Uh, and I tell you that little story of course, uh, to illustrate the effects of what's, what happens to people when they know that they have done wrong. And in this particular case that we've read in, in Genesis chapter 3 of Adam and Eve in the garden. In recent weeks we have uh, learned how they were given complete freedom in this garden. Uh, glorious freedom uh, in which they were placed to enjoy all the fruits of the garden except from one tree. And in enjoying those fruits they were to enjoy also communion with God. That God had made the garden, he had put them in the, uh, Adam in the garden then made Eve and uh, he had put them in the garden and they were to enjoy all that the garden had to offer in fellowship with God. So God was willing to, to give himself to his creatures in love and mercy, grace uh, to his creatures. And uh, there was that one tree, of course, that one tree that they were not allowed to, to take from. They were not allowed to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And yet we discovered last week through the beguiling words of the serpent, they were tempted to take from it. And as we've said before, it's not that there's anything special about the, the tree in itself, or the fruit in itself. The significance of the tree was the fact that God had marked it out. You shall not eat from this tree. And the point of it is, you need, man, woman, you need to obey what God has commanded. It's a tree of probation, it's a tree of testing. Uh, they are not to eat of it. But instead of submitting themselves to the Lordship of God and enjoying all the fullness of all the rest that he has given them, they, they chose to eat from that one tree 
And I noted last week, uh, Satan never says at any point, uh, you should eat from that tree. He just, uh, he kind of wanders around it, doesn't it? He's, there's a sort of circumlocution going on here. There's, there's a, 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 a pointing to it and saying, and just inflaming the desires of the heart. And as they look at the fruit, they think, well, that looks good for food, and it looks beautiful to look at, and so on. And they start thinking, well, oh, I wonder what it tastes like. And I'm going to have it. And so Eve takes it, and you know, Adam standing there uh, like a fool, uh, just follows his wife, and uh, uh, having had the command directly, he just ignores it, and he takes it, he, he eats it. And there's that breach now in the relationship with God. And here's what happens to them. The first thing that happens to them is they feel guilty. And the way that that's expressed initially is that they, they, they are become very conscious of their nakedness. Now, nobody's said it's a bad thing to be naked uh, in this garden. In fact, you know, he's made, God has made them beautiful. There's nothing wrong with that. But it's a strange thing, isn't it? They'd never thought about it before, that they didn't have any clothes. And now it's the first thing they think about. And they feel themselves vulnerable, and they want to cover themselves up. This is, this is what happens with all wrongdoing, is you want to hide, you want to cover things up, you want to cover your life up. And every one of us, I think, has to admit that in this fallen world, there is part of each of us that wants to remain closed to outside eyes. Every one of us wants things covered up in our lives. There's part of us that has and stores up embarrassing secrets that no one else may want, that we may not want anyone else to get close to. We all have things that we are ashamed of having done. And this is what the Bible calls the conscience. The conscience of the heart that's in the heart of every man, woman, boy or girl. We feel bad when we've done wrong. At least we have a glimmer of that, bad, uh, that feeling when we have done wrong. We have a, in us a, a sense of what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is bad. And when we do wrong, there's that little voice that comes into our heads and says, You've done wrong. You've done it. You failed. And our reaction to it can be expressed in the most physical of ways. Who, who amongst us has not at some point remembered something we've done in the past and, and, and physically felt that sense of cringing at the thought of it? Some of them not serious, but some things may be serious. And we have that inner sense of cringing. And here we see it in Adam and Eve, hiding from God, covering themselves up. And it, they have this impulse to hide. But it doesn't stop there, and uh, you know, the story has to play out, uh, because they still have to, to meet God. And so the first thing I want to uh, address this morning is how the, the excuses begin. How the excuses begin. So here in verse 8 we have God, the Lord God, portrayed, it's interesting isn't it, he's, he's portrayed as having human characteristics. He is, he's walking in the garden, 
he makes sounds as he does so and he uses an audible voice to call out to Adam and it's intriguing isn't it it's a, it's a kind of a theophany if you like an appearance of God a manifestation of God uh, which is not described for us it just, we just know the phenomena the, the sounds, the, uh, the walking the voice but God uses this is how God works in interacting with his creatures isn't it he uses created things to manifest himself amongst his people uh, and you find this all, all across the Bible don't you and um, and the, the Hebrew verb form if, for those of you who are interested uh, suggests that the, this is a this is this is a habitual practice of God he was in the habit of walking in the garden at certain times of the day in the cool of the day there's a debate about whether it's the cool of the day or it's in the storm a, some, some kind of storm that blew up um, we'll not go into that but here's God at certain times of the day and he's walking through the garden it's a continue it's a reminder isn't it that Adam and Eve had this most wonderful relationship with God where uh, they could walk with him, they could talk about the things that they see in the, in the creation, the created order in the, in, the, in the garden, in Eden and uh, you can just imagine God as it were, taking them by the hand and, and walking with them through the garden and talking about all the good things that God has given them and God taking pleasure I think in the fact that his creatures are enjoying what he has made. But what a privilege, you know, what, what a wonder, what a joy, uh, what a pleasure for that to happen day by day. But what do they do on this occasion when they hear him? Do they say, oh, I hear the Lord God walking, let's go and join him. Uh, no, there's shame in their hearts now. A big change has happened to them. There's shame in their hearts. And what a tragedy. They want to hide from God. They want to cover themselves up. Now, we need to remember at this point, of course, that whatever the manifestation was of God in the garden, God is still God. Uh, he knows all things. So when God asks them a question in verse 9, where are you? Or in verse 11, who has told you you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Uh, you can be sure that he knows the answer to that. Uh, the best invest investigators usually know the answer to things before, uh, before the answer is given. And Adam, of course, gives a, a silly answer. Uh, because of course he's been naked before it's never been an issue before but now he says well I saw I was, in, I was naked and I thought I'd hide and why should he be afraid he's never been afraid before but now he's afraid but it's not his nakedness that's the issue it's his shame and you see either, either Adam at this point is lying he knows the real issue but he thinks he can cover it up with some other excuse or he doesn't really know himself yet. Uh, it's part of the problem of human beings is we don't actually know ourselves particularly well. Uh, we do things without really understanding ourselves. But he doesn't know. He doesn't know himself. But he he feels something. 
but he doesn't know what it is. And that's, that's perhaps the most positive thing we can say about Adam's, Adam's response. But God, of course, gets to the heart of the matter in verse 11. He says, have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you uh, not to eat? And so Adam admits it, but he doesn't quite admit it. He, he doesn't quite come clean about it. He, he blames the woman, first of all. She gave me the fruits to eat. It's her fault. And actually, by the way, uh, you are the one who gave me this woman. So he, he's subtly blaming God for the predicament that he's in. And then when God turns to the woman, she at least she admits that she ate, but she in turn points to the serpent and says, he made me eat. You see the excuses that are, made, are building up? Friends, we need to see how sin works out in our lives. We saw how last week how temptation comes before sin where it constantly challenges us with questions like, did God really say? Uh, or it questions God's character and his motives uh, before we actually are led into sin. Or suggests that God is somehow withholding blessings from us. Now, that's how temptation works before sin. But then afterwards, the weeds of corruption strang- begin to strangle the beauty of these new creatures as their hearts now twist and turn to deny the truth. And these are the problems that we face, aren't they? We want to hide. We want to cover up our sin. We want to become hypocrites. And we come up with clever reasoning as to why it's okay to be a hypocrite and to justify our reasons. And finally, we try and share out the shame as much as we possibly can. We like to pass it on to others around us. And if we can, best of all, we, we can put it on God and tell God that he's the one that's the problem. I'm only a victim, we say. It was everyone else. It was society that failed us. It was God who failed us. Isn't that what we see in public life? Constant blame shifting. Uh, just, just this last week there was somebody convicted for some terrible crimes. Uh, uh, and all the way through the, the trial apparently he tried to make excuses and to f- make out that he was actually a victim in the whole thing. But he was perpetrating uh, terrible evils. It happens all the time. I wonder if there's anyone here today who lives their life like this, who lives defensively, always keeping some part of you uh, closed to other people because of the shame of your life. And if there is a God who is holy and righteous, how could you possibly be open with him about your shame and your guilt? This is how our, our hearts think. But on the other hand, how can you possibly bear it? How can you bear the weight, the pressure of that burden of sin and shame and guilt that is constantly upon you? It's such a burden, isn't it, to carry it on your shoulders. And even now as I'm speaking, you may want to switch off and not 
be reminded of it. Friends, this morning I want you to, uh, you and I, we need to acknowledge the burden, the burden of our shame and guilt. And I invite you to continue with me, to stick with me as we go a bit deeper into the consequences. There is hope at the end of these verses, but I need to ask you to hang on for a bit longer as we uh, come to it. But let me go a bit deeper and talk, um, secondly, about the consequences of sin. The consequences of this one fall, the sin. There's been a sin committed. There's been a direct violation of uh, verse, chapter 2, verse 17. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And this command has not been issued, I need to remind you, it's not been issued by another creature. It's been issued by God, God their maker, uh, the ultimate source of all things, the one upon whom all things depend and to whom all things owe their existence. And he deserves, therefore, to be obeyed by virtue of who he is. And the Bible tells us that God is is holy and pure. Habakkuk 1.13, the prophet Habakkuk says, You are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look on wrong. And so when there is sin, God has to do something about it. He cannot avoid it. And so what follows here is a list of curses placed upon the serpent, the woman, and then the man. Now each of these curses has a a kind of simple structure. There's a physical curse of some sort, but then there is a a relational curse that, that is also given. A physical curse, then a relational curse. So let's just work work through what they are. First of all, the serpent in verses 14 and 15. The physical curse is that its position in the created order is to be exceedingly humble, to slide on its belly, to eat uh, uh, its mouth to eat the dirt. And that's forever going to be its lot in life. The relational curse is that there is going to be a future conflict between his offspring and that of the woman. Now, I'm going to say more about that in a moment as we come to the third point. Uh, But there's going to be a relational uh, curse upon the serpent. But the woman now, secondly, the physical curse is, well, it's the pain of childbirth. Um, And those of you who've had children, you you know what that is. Uh, I don't know what that is. Um, I was there when uh, our daughter was born and uh, I could see the pain, but I could only imagine what it was like. But the pain of childbirth. There's a theological reason. There may be physical reasons that scientists can tell us, but there's a theological reason for it. That it is a reminder continually of the broken relationship with God. Uh, Those of you who uh, have had children and expect to have children in the future... Uh, and you'll, you know, you've, you've gone through that pain, or you'll go through that pain, there is an opportunity to remember the relationship with God that's been lost by sin, or, or marred by sin. Then there's a relational curse that the woman is going to experience. The relationship that's singled out here is the relationship with her husband. Uh, before it... Before the fall, 
partners complemented one another, the man was given the task of working and keeping the garden and ruling over the creatures, and then the woman is, is, was made then to help the man uh, in his God-given mission. And together they would enjoy the fullness of creation. And generally, of course, that's a pattern for a healthy marriage, isn't it? Uh, the woman leaves the home of her parents to join her husband, uh, who then leads her in doing what God has given him and them to do together. Uh, the man should take the lead in the, in the marriage. However, under the relational curse, the man would rule his wife as though with a rod dominate and then she would have a desire for her husband now that's not a romantic desire so much as a desire to be in his place and so you can see the seeds of the tension that emerges between men and women in a fallen world that many marriages suffer from this conflict between a man and his wife because of this relational curse. And it has all kinds of effects, at least to the breakdown of marriages, to the abuse of wives, to the abuse of children, and to the, sometimes to the abandonment of children. And we can see all the effects of this all around us, I think. The relational curse. And then there is the, the curse on man himself. He put the words of his wife above those of God. And again, there's a physical curse. It'll be more difficult to eat and make a living. Uh, the work of cultivation will become painful. Uh, and that word pain is the idea of sor uh, toil and sorrow, uh, difficulty, trial. Uh, it will no longer be the joy that it once was in the Garden of Eden. It will be painful toil with much sorrow to get something to eat all the days of his life. We continue to see that today, all over the world, except for a few, I think. It's a struggle to make ends meet, to put enough food on the table, to keep going, and it wears you down constantly. So that's the physical effects. Relationally, and this is a bit more subtle, I think, uh, as one commentator put it, there is estrangement from the earth estrangement from the earth this constant battle to eke out a living from the ground, from the dust and in the end the dust wins because the man was made from the dust but to the dust he will return and the curse that was threat threatened in 2 verse 17 will come to fruition he will surely die Work, sweat, toil, pain, till you drop. One science fiction writer in the US once coined, coined the sentence, Life is hard, then you die. Life is hard, then you die. It became a very, very popular quote a couple of decades ago. It was found on bumper stickers. Life is hard, then you die. You drive past it, you have a smile on your face, and you think, what a funny thing to say. And... Uh, uh, and, and instead you think, eat, drink and be merry. But, uh, and you think when you're young, you know, there's plenty to look forward to. But when you get older, reality dawns. Life is hard, then you die. And you get to the point where you say, was that my life? Is that it? I've met people like that. They've got, they're coming towards the end of their life. They're in retirement. 
And they, they actually said to me, you know, sometimes I wonder where my life's gone and what I've done with my life. Was that it? And he's not living, you know, I think of one particular guy in Derby. And uh, he wasn't living in a fancy place. He hadn't accumulated wealth and, and riches. He had had a hard life. And he was kind of bitter about it. Death claim, and death in the end, death claims us all. Well, that's a, that's a gloomy picture, isn't it? And I think it's meant to be. It's meant to be a gloomy picture. The, the effect, the consequences of, of sin, of disobedience to God, have wreaked untold havoc on our existence. And so you may be asking yourself this morning, is there no hope in this story? <laughs> well, you'd be glad to know, yes, there is. There's hope just at the end. And... Uh, so let me just deal finally with signs of grace and hope. There are, there are three signs, I think, that are here in these last two verses. Uh, firstly, you'll notice that the concept of, of life remains important, an important feature. That even though man's ultimate destiny is to, is to return to the dust, uh, life remains important. What do I mean? Well, note for a moment that God could have fulfilled chapter 2, verse 17 by simply withdrawing life at that very moment of disobedience. It may puzzle us why he didn't do it. He could have died instantly as he ate the fruit, but he didn't. Why not? And then more than that, look at the way that the woman is named in verse 20. That Eve, the name Eve, is derived from this verb uh, to live, and, and therefore Eve becomes the mother of all living. And and so not only are Adam and Eve permitted to live for a bit longer beyond their first sin, but they're permitted to perpetuate the human race. So life is permitted to continue on this earth. And there is in this a sign of hope. Because what God is doing is he is staying his hand from instant judgment. So that's the first sign. The second sign of grace and hope is the way that God seems to care for Adam and Eve. Even though they have wronged him, he makes provision, God makes provision for their nakedness. Much better than their own attempts to sew together fig leaves. And uh, there's this practical provision of skins for them to wear, but also a spiritual provision. Uh, how's, that? how's that a spiritual provision? Well, remember their consciousness of their nakedness? Not because there was anything wrong with their physical form, but rather nakedness, their sense of nakedness was uh, symbolic of their exposure of their sin before God. And in a corresponding way, when God provides clothing for them to cover themselves, he is unmistakably showing that he also is making provision available to remedy the corruption of their souls. It is the first hint that God is going to do something about their sin. And friends, if you haven't got it by now, you need to know that God, though he cursed man and woman, 
he did not abandon men and women to condemnation without first making open to them a way of salvation. Which brings us to the third sign of grace and hope. And it's to do with that promise that's in verse 15 made to the serpent. Because that that verse speaks of two lines of descendants. I believe these refer to human beings, not to snakes. Uh, two lines of human beings. And uh, the line of the serpents who are given over to evil, evil thoroughly in the grip of the evil one, and all the passions and desires of men and women uh, in this line are under the serpent's control. And then there's a line that's marked by commitment to God, where men and women love God. And you can see this as it plays out in the rest of the book of Genesis. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 4, we have two sons, Cain and Abel. Abel, who made righteous offerings. Cain, who made unrighteous offerings and killed his brother Abel to get what he wanted. So we have these two lines which, which become two kingdoms throughout history, where God seems to have his hand upon one of the kingdoms... And the rest are given over to evil. And there is uh, this climax in verse 15 where God says, He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. You see, one of the descendants of Eve will strike a decisive blow against the power of the devil. Uh, that word bruise could, be, could mean crush or to mean strike at. And yet this blow is not going to be without cost to that seed of the woman, because he himself will suffer and be bruised. Now at this point in verse 15, we can't, you know, Moses probably couldn't see how that was going to play out. Um, we can see it now because we have the rest of the Bible. But uh, Moses was a prophet carried along by the Holy Spirit. He wrote down all that the Holy Spirit carried him into. And uh, he may looked at, have looked at it afterwards and thought, what does that mean? But we can see now that this history is heading towards a climax where a promise will be once and for all fulfilled. Where does it happen? It happens at the cross of Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the seed of the woman who came. And it's at the cross that he crushed the head of the serpent. He himself was crushed. He was put to death, though he committed no sin. And as Isaiah 53 puts it, he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see what God was planning to do? The man had sinned. The covenant in Eden had been broken. But there was another plan at work. Even here in the garden. That God was planning to send a saviour. The seed of the woman. And through him he was going to be able to open up the way for people to, to live forever. But only through the seed that would be crushed. You see, in Jesus' death, provision is, it's in Jesus' death that provision is made to cover all my sin. 
It's in his death that the power of sin, the power of Satan, the power of death has been broken. So that yet, though we will die, yet we shall live again. This is the great truth of the gospel. And so friends, as we finish, how, how can we have this? How can we have this life? Well, it's through the second covenant. Not a covenant of works, as the confession puts it, but a covenant of grace, where Jesus Christ does all the necessary works on our behalf, for me, for you, as we put our faith in Him. All that rests rests for us to do is to put our faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. Come to Him in faith. Trust His promises. Live for Him in faith. So were you, were you burdened by your sin? As we were talking about it at the beginning. Burdened by the sense of shame. Do you want to be free of it? Then the way to be free is to put your trust in the seed of the woman, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this wonderful provision. Even immediately after the fall, this provision was foretold for us. And it comes to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. We pray that you'd help us to turn our eyes to him and to make him the central one of our lives. Help us to trust him, to trust in his saving work for us, and to have access again to that tree of life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.